This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Hi everyone, welcome to Where East Meets West, the collaboration between Epilogue and America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. And whenever we meet, you know, it's so meaningful for me because I'm consistently really trying to find a way in how we can get along and actually live a better life. Have you ever been in a situation where your relationship is just flourishing? Both of you, you might be different, but you're having great dreams and you're supporting each other's dreams and you can feel how you're building it, each other up and you can feel the intoxication and the excitement about it. What's wrong with that? rather than being in a situation when you keep knocking down, knocking each other down, thinking that that's the only way you can maintain and keep your power. I don't believe it. History has actually revealed to us it's enough. It's enough fighting, grappling, and just doing stuff with each other that's just breaking our hearts apart. Today, my special guest is Raghu Devagup. Let me see if I can get this right. Growing up in America as an Indian doesn't make it easier. But Devaguptapu, who is a media consultant and political strategist, he has, you know, over 20 years experience. 20 years of experience in campaigning and heads the Washington, D.C. office of Left Hook Communications, where he's a partner. He has um, held high-profile independent, you know, done some really big stuff with the congressional leaders and statewide elections across the country, and was named to Political Playbooks Washington, D.C.'s power list as the go-to media consultant for the highest-profile campaigns. Raghu was the first Asian-American to be named political director of the National Party Committee. And while at the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, he helped flip 30, 30 chambers into Democratic control, the largest partisan Democratic shift our nation in the United States has ever seen. He's also director on the board of the Impact Fund, which is designed to help elect Indian American and aid also, you know, allied candidates running for office. Please welcome Raghu to the show. Welcome, Raghu. I'm so inspired by you. You're what I love to hear about. So thank you for showing up the way you are. Well, that's very kind of you, sister, and thanks for having me. You've had quite an interesting story, and you're the son of an Indian immigrant, and you went from touring with a band to working at the <laughs> the upper echelons of both you know state and local national politics, and then co-founding your own media firm. Tell us a little bit about your backstory and what inspired you to a career of campaign politics. It must be such an exciting time, and you must be quite an interesting voice of shifting <laughs> things. Tell us a little bit. I don't know if exciting is the right word. I might argue that troubling might be the better, uh, the better term and, and sort of the reason why I think what you're, what you're trying to do here is important. I got into the political space very early in my undergrad. Uh, and it's a pretty, it's a, and it was for a very clear reason. You know, I, I looked at, to take it backwards farther. My parents, uh, immigrated from Hyderabad, um, in the late sixties, uh, uh, so the Kennedy administration um, in the early 60s had opened up visas uh, for now they call it STEM, right? For science, technology jobs. Um, my father was an engineer. So they had opened up uh, visas to Asian countries for the first time. And uh, so my parents made the choice to leave India and come here to the States to 
and frankly, create a better life for themselves. And I, I actually always make this joke. I, I, I say this professionally all the time. You know, I, I spent most of my life being the only Indian or the only, frankly, person of color in almost every room that I was in. And, uh, uh, and I think that had a lot to do with who I am today. Um, when I went to college, one of the things that struck me very quickly, even as a 17 year old kid, and I was a musician playing in a band was, uh, uh, now we talk about these words a lot, the inequity that existed. I saw so many kids, particularly kids who were of color, who were starting this race from a starting line that was behind everybody else. And the thing that really stood out to me was how it what was very clear was the sacrifice that my parents made to put myself and my older sister in a position to start that starting line to start that race from an advantageous place and that just wasn't everybody else and uh you know very early on i realized that maybe the right thing to do for me was to do work that could actually celebrate my parents' own immigrant experience by like working to help so others can get the same opportunities that 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 I was lucky enough to get. And uh, that, uh, you know, so through advocacy, starting an advocacy that moved me into the campaign space. But I, what I learned for me was that working in this campaign space was the most direct and effective way to try to make the type of change that I wanted to see. And so uh, I, I ran my first race in college and here I am uh 30 years later and uh i never stopped <laughs> and you will not ever stop so you know it's interesting because it seems as if your bloodline you come from the family heritage where it's just woven in you to kind of create some sort of a movement your grand uncle was the first governor of the southern state of madras after indian independence tell us a little bit about him and the impact that that might have had on you yeah, I, you know, it's funny. So this is my grandmother's family. So he was very active in the independence movement. His name was Tungaturi Prakasham. There's statues of him, uh, you know, across South India. His nickname was Andhra Kesari, uh, uh, the Lion of Andhra. Um, and he, you know, as the story goes, he was very active in the independence movement. And as the story goes, when uh, the Salt March was happening across India, he led the march in the South. And when the British Army tried to stop the march, one of the reasons they were unable to stop the march in South India was because of him. I, I think that there was a sense of pride in knowing that um, I had a background, uh, that there was a part of my family background that believed in making a difference. I think oppression and tyranny are real things. And, uh, you know, when you stand up to defend your culture and to frankly, you know, push for freedom and independence. I think that that's, um, that's honorable. And so I think that those characteristics sort of like stuck out to me. Yeah. And they were passed on to you too. I was remembering when we went to war in Iraq, it must've been in the eighties. I just bought a brand new BMW and I rode on the car, no more war, <laughs> just bought a brand new one. And it was interesting to see how I wanted to find a way to speak out about things that I wasn't too clear on or I didn't feel I was supporting. 
But I've noticed that as I've matured, my speaking out has taken a different turn. It is to first become knowledgeable about the situation and find a way in how I can bridge whatever the conflict might be. And spirituality is a very big part of that for me in terms of coming from a more mindful, respectful space and yet still trying to get my message across. We now have a particular time where it's so thrilling to see so many Indians, Indian Americans now in office. We had a historic election of Vice President Kamala Harris. And I think what we've got now about 4 million Indian Americans in the United States, and they're still underrepresented on, you know, by elected officials. Could you tell us a little bit about your impact fund that seeks to change all of that? Yeah, and that's not my impact fund. I'm, I'm on the board of the organization. And I'm really proud of the organization, actually. Uh, you know, the first iteration of trying to activate the Indian American community politically that I saw started in the early 2000s. And any organization that's volunteer driven when it starts has rises and falls. And I'd seen multiple iterations of something like this get to the precipice of growth and sustenance only to see it falter. And the thing that excited me to, to the point where over my career, I've been pretty lucky to get to do things that are relevant for our community. You, you know, um, so when I first was at the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, which is, again, the arm of the National Democrats that works to win and protect state legislative chambers around the country, there were maybe four Indian Americans or South Asians uh, elected to state legislatures around the country. Um, and I started the DLCC in, in 2001. Um, by 2010, that number got to 10 or 15. And now we've seen this, this plethora of growth in the space over time. Uh, you know, one of the things, and, and I'll bring this back to the impact fund. One of the things that I was, that I've been most proud of in my career was helping elect Ami Berra to Congress. And so I've had a hand in some way or the other in almost, uh, every American that's been elected federally. Um, and, uh, uh, Ami's race. He was the first Indian American to be elected to Congress since the Lipsing Sound in like, the 1940s, right? So we had had a, you know, over 60 year gap between representation at the federal level. And, you know, we had some great candidates who yeah. were, uh, who had run and lost, uh, mainly due to unfortunate broad and national environmental circumstances at the federal level. But you know, we got Ami elected in, in, in 2012. And since then, we've seen more. We've seen Raja Krishnamurthy and Pramila J. Paul and Ro Khanna and, and, uh, and, and obviously uh, Senator Harris. But that, that growth in itself has been tremendous. So the impact fund, here's to the point of bridging divides. I think that this is important about the story of the impact fund, actually. You know, it, it has multi-generational leadership. There was some leadership in our community who were closer to my parents, you know, more of my parents' generation than my generation, who started this organization alongside of people from my generation. And so you had two different generations of Indians in this country who came together and recognized that there needed to be an effort uh, to sustain 
advocacy for our community. And that's beyond just the political space. It's appointments in our government, just helping us have a greater voice. And I think that there's a central belief, which is, is that our community is part of the social fabric of this country. And our voice is an important one. And it's a story that's continuing to be told. And having more of our voices at the table as part of the decision-making process is only going to help make the country even stronger. And so that's been the sort of basic, uh, the basic desire of the organization. And what's really exciting about it is, is its growth is now as a full-time organization with, you know, eight full-time staff. Um, uh, and they are, you know, using their efforts, not just electorally, but in multiple advocacy spaces, including, advocating uh, to help the administration to try to help with COVID vaccinations in India, for instance. Um, there's there's so many applications to a strong community that's advocating uh, for ourselves and impact is an organization's working to continue to grow that. My bad. Congratulations on that. Tell me, educate me a little bit. What are some of our needs? Uh, what are the things that you've heard? It's been a consistent theme that the South Asian and Asian American community is asking for. Uh, you know, interestingly, Impact just did a uh, did some survey research uh, around the Georgia elections and the Virginia elections on this topic. Um, you know, getting back to bridging the divide. You know, for as different as our community and nuanced as our community might be, um, you know, as part of the the broader fabric of the American society, uh, there's a lot that's the same. You know, and and the, the, there's so many things that. It, it seems that our community wants that the rest of the country wants to. Um, but I, I top top of mind and first and foremost in what we're seeing over and over here is a desire to see our country drive policy that keeps us safe from this from this pandemic and continues to practice uh, policies that will help us see past the pandemic from the health side to keeping our businesses open through good health to, you know, um, and that stems into keeping our kids safe at school and helping our populations grow. Um, I, I, you know, very broadly, those are issues that our community cares about. Um, increasingly, also, there are healthcare concerns, more testing and research that is specific to our community as these tests and these things happen. There's a, a, a broad variety of, of issues that our community cares about, but those are ones that you know, across the spectrum, those are issues that are, it seems to stand out for, for, for South Asians. Interesting. Um, let's take it a little bit personal. Growing up in America and visiting and going back and forth to India, what were the differences that you were able to see very clearly of the pros, the pros of living in America versus living in India? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know it's a loaded question. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually thinking about this in a couple of ways, right? Like I was going to very simply say quality of life, but I don't think that's completely true. So um, I, I think that there are certain pieces of quality of life, right? Like when I started going to India it was in the 70s. Um, I think things like water quality and just general cleanliness, you know, in the, I, I grew up in a place in America that had, you know, little that had, you know, less poverty in a, in a really and truly meaningful way, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there was a quality of life standard that felt a little easier here. Now, given, you know, there are many families in India that, you know, that have a lot more 
help in the home and and all of those things that we may not have here but very broadly i think that was a that was a big piece and really i've said this in, in a few interviews but i i would i would posit uh that the thing about trips to india that stuck with me most has more to do with culture and family and how those things i think impacted me positively here I think it can be very easy to lose yourself and to also feel like a man without a country if you don't know who you are. And what was helpful for me was being Indian, the way my parents raised my sister and I helped create a foundation of knowing who I was, knowing myself, which I think ended up being incredibly helpful for me um here and i i do consider myself i mean i'm an american people ask me what i'm like i'm an indian american and i i, I really i identify as such and believe myself to be both things you know yeah yeah apple pie and chai both of them <laughs> the meats chocolate cake and chai so <laughs> you know the way that we move forward now with everything being so uniquely different what would you say are some of the things that we might need to start to pay attention to looking at the political spectrum, looking at the social issues, just looking at life in general, when you sit in your quiet moments with your, what was it with your chai and pie, <laughs> you know, what are those thoughts that come up in your mind sometimes when you're daydreaming about the next five, 10 years, what do you see? Let's start with our community. I hope that our voice continues to, to, to grow. I, I, I hope that this country finds its footing for tolerance and for difference again, which I think we've lost a little bit of. I think recognizing inequity is really important and we are way too far behind in things that we can do to make more people's lives better. I think that there is a place for all Americans to be uplifted. And I think we're falling short. And I hope that we can do things in the next five to 10 years uh, that continue along that path. And that's a, that's a struggle. It's not easy. Um, but that's, I think what I would, I would hope for myself. I think, if I have the ability to, you know, continue to take care of my family um, and do well and, and, and to continue to grow our business and be successful while continuing to create the change that I think we need, that's, that's a lot right there. And um, probably all I could really ask for. Yeah, true. You know, I used to be very close friends with one of the, the president, the former president of the World Bank. And one day, myself and his wife, and we were just having lunch together. And he came in the room and he said, Sister Jen, I don't know what it is. You tell me the answer. Why can't we eradicate poverty and all that we've done here at the bank? And so on and so on and so on. And I said, you know, until you ed educate individuals on consciousness, how are they going to change their ways and their patterns and even believe that you really want to give them a better way of life? That's not what they're used to. Yeah. And I've seen Raghu time and time again, where look at the times that we're in, brother. We've got so much now. And social media is no less that it has given us a window to things that we could never even imagine 
I mean, Mark Zuckerberg has just launched a new thing called, I think, Meta something. It's called Meta, you know, taking us more into a more AI industry and all of this. And yet, I don't know how much of the interior work is being done, Raghu. To what extent have we been offering enough information and knowledge? And I don't mean, you know, hiring a guru to come and give you a munch and read something from a sloka. I mean, to really help us along with, with consciousness, attitude, behaviors, intent. Why do you think that's still lacking in our policymaking, in our systems, in our country, just in our lives? I wonder if it's because we don't know what we should value. And I think that that's probably why is because I'm not sure, and I would answer this also separately, and this is why I think cultural pluralism in decision-making is really important. Um, I have a client, his name is, uh, he is a congressman, his name is Tim Ryan. He's running for the U.S. Senate. In Love Ohio. Tim. He's a, right, he's, a, he's a national elected official, he's running for U.S. Senate. And you know, Tim is, Tim comes from a very blue-collar working-class family in Youngstown, Ohio. He, you know, uh, his most of his family worked in, in, you know, in a plant, you know, he was very close to his grandparents. As Tim got older, Tim found in his life that mindfulness was something that he needed, that he desired. And uh, what's interesting to me, and I know that this isn't what you were actually talking about, but Tim over the course of his professional life and advocating for changes of congressman for however many years now, is very practicing in mindfulness and yoga. And he actually takes a lot of those lessons that help with him personally. And he's trying to, and he's trying to apply them into how to be mindful and thoughtful of the people that he's serving and the people who might not agree with them. And I, I, to your point, I, you know, he's an exception, I think, to the rule of that way you know, in this space, but I think cultural pluralism is relevant. And this is why it's important that we have more people that look like the face of America in places to make change, because I think those types of values and those types of things can be more included into the process of decision-making. But the biggest thing here is, is I find we are increasingly not being, we need to strive to be better listeners overall. Um, and, and I think that that's the thing that's lacking. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually is connected to our spiritual heritage too. I mean, if you're a good listener, you can definitely engage well in what is at the heart of the person's needs. And when you can tap into that, you can fulfill what they need without them even having to ask you. Mm -hmm. And I continue to remain in this particular region so that I can keep pushing through the importance of being able to do some of the interior work as we shape policies, because there's absolutely no reason, Raghubai, that we should be fighting and quarreling the way that we are. I was watching um, something on C-SPAN the other day, and the, the lack of integrity and respect that members of Congress were just having for each other on the floor. I just thought to myself, do they really believe in this? Do they really feel this is the way to communicate? And is it just theater? But then at what cost of younger voices that are watching this and saying, maybe this, this is the way to politic. Now, there's a lot of misinformation. There's so much out there. It's taking place in this country and around the world. What makes an effective and impactful campaign ad nowadays? Because I think we're growing up and especially this generation is aware of the game that's being played. It's like, how do you discern, Raghu, 
when something is really genuine and then you can put your thoughts in it to say, I want to go behind this rather than being so uncertain. I mean, are they just trying to convince me for something that they'll never do? How does somebody on the outside of campaign advertising look for certain signals to have them find the, the clarity and the interest of, is this an issue that I really need to support? I think authenticity really matters. Um, and it, it sometimes it's, it's hard to, to deliver that. I mean, look, the real problem is, is that most people aren't engaged in, in this, right? Everybody is. So these campaigns as they're running, they're not just competing against each other. They're competing against voters' daily lives, right? Uh, uh, most voters aren't paying attention to a campaign ad. They're paying attention to try to get their kid to soccer practice. Um, you know, uh, and if they are paying attention to something that's going on around them, it's more likely to be a corporate product like a Honda car dealership ad than it is, you know, a, a political campaign, right? So I, I think we, 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 you know, recognizing the challenges of the space, I, I, you know, I think that we've learned that voters do crave authenticity. Um, I, I think the real problem is, is a lot of folks sort of go to a, a corner already. And so they start with these walls up and they're less willing to sort of see another opinion. They're actually truly less persuadable than they've been in the past, which I think speaks to a larger problem um, to your point about misinformation. Uh, but, you know, we find what's always most successful uh, on campaigns is, is when you're driving, not just running on issues, but you're actually driving more of the motivation behind why you want to serve. What is the purpose of your service? How does that impact uh, the electorate? You know, those things, I think, really matter. Um, and which is where we see when it's done effectively. I think it's where we see, you know, elected officials who are able to cross partisanship. Um, uh, two examples in the state of Arizona. John McCain, who a lot of Democrats voted for, and Mark Kelly, which is a campaign that we just did uh, two years ago, or last election cycle. Um, Mark Kelly, who a lot of Repo even though he's a Democrat, a lot of Republicans wanted to vote for. Um, and I think that those two in that state specifically, I think, are good examples of how, you know, there are opportunities to break through. I agree. Um, our country is supposed to be, you know, with the idea of one nation under God, and it has fractured. It's been fractured by the opinions of politics, gender, race, econ economics, and even medicine. What would you say is the underlying, the greatest crisis of our current generation? How can we heal the divide? Any ideas? Uh, there's a lot of crisis in our generation. The civility would be a good start. And recognizing what our goals are. I, I specifically with too many elected officials, we're, we're, we're driven more by dogma, um, you know, than we are on accomplishing something. Uh, I'm going to make this political now, but you take a look at the president today who is right now working to try to find the votes to pass a, a, what was hoped to be a bipartisan infrastructure package that has a lot of things in it to, to, to get done because, you know, he was elected on this idea that we need big, bold change to move the country forward. Right. And while, you know, there's been this press narrative over, you know, the Democrats not able to consolidate every vote to, you know, they've been negotiating internally to try to find something that they could work through. But what we're missing in this is that you have 50 Republicans in the U S Senate, none of whom are supporting any of these pieces in this package. And you mean to tell me, 
that there aren't pieces in this package that they can't get behind. That's absurd. And, and, you know, and, and the reason why I think while these Democrats haven't been able to get this done yet, they're close. I think it shows though the thoughtfulness behind recognizing that you have lots of people from lots of different backgrounds who have needs and how do you marry those together? So they're going to ultimately find what others would call a compromise package that is going to help Americans. And that takes thoughtfulness and time. That's not easy, but it's very interesting to me that they are doing it by themselves with zero help, right? Or interest from a single member of the opposing party, right? That's not what our founders meant for this to be like. Um, and that's a real problem. I have to say, I haven't found the answer yet, but something that I had observed from the previous administration is despite how it was, they stuck together like glue. And I just wonder if this current leadership and this, and I know we need to be integrous and, and, and straightforward, but sometimes I wonder to push it forward, don't we just need to stick together completely no matter what until we get to the mountaintop, you know, and then we can breathe a sigh of relief and then say, what did you want again? What did you want again? Am I just being too airy fairy wishing that it could be like that? I think so, actually. And I think by that, because, you know, we just spent a lot of time talking about needing to be better listeners. And I think what you're seeing in the slowing process to try to accomplish this is a true desire to actually listen to, you know, how can you construct a national policy that's going to work for West Virginia? That's also going to work for Oregon. And that's not simple. And if you actually truly want to try to accomplish something that can work broadly for this nation, then it's going to take real work to iron out how you get that done between Oregon and West Virginia, which are very different. And, um, you know, I, I would actually propose that the fact that they're as close as they are to this with, again, you know, no help from the one nation Congress uh, to, to accomplish this is, is very telling, you know, I, I, I so I, I, I think, you know, um, look, I'm a, I'm a partisan operative, so I'm obviously going to, you know, uh, um, push a narrative. You. you know, I'm going to push a narrative. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I, I think it's not that simple to govern. And I think what we're seeing is a, in a, a real attempt to try to coalition govern with the party. And I, I, I think that that's actually... At some level, when we talk about what we value, when we value actually trying to hear people and trying to do this constructively and put this together, I think instead of being chastised for this, they probably should be they probably should be lauded for uh, their attempts to try to piece something together that can work for a very very broad set of people. Um, I love that. You know, I love that. Cultural pluralism isn't easy. It's what we want, but it's not simple. Um, yeah, yeah. And that takes lots of work and lots of learning. Um, one of the things that you keep seeing out of this is, is while there's some things that this senator or this representative wants to support or doesn't want to, what doesn't want to support, the one thing you keep seeing or you keep reading is, is them saying, I'm still trying to understand and I'm still trying to learn. And I, I you know, kudos to them for that. Yeah. Because that's not what we're seeing from both parties in this process. There was a U.S. senator from the state of Wisconsin who said that he hopes for uh, he, he hopes 
that there is gridlock and he doesn't even want to read the proposal. Wow. What is that? Uh, it's definitely not leadership to me, but leadership right. is certainly a hot topic now in the areas of politics and business and pretty much everything we do. Yeah. You know, what do you think is the, what characteristics have you found that all great leaders have in common, especially working with a lot of these political leaders? Clarity in their service. I think a solid, a solid understanding of why they want to do this. And, yeah. you know, I think that that's, that's the, that, that's the biggest thing. And I also see some of the ones that are most effective are dogged in, in their relentlessness to see change, which I think is fairly inspiring um, from some of these folks. Clarity in their service. I love that. It's beautiful. So what's next for you, Raghu? You've accomplished so much and you're doing it from passion. I mean, come on from being a little band and now helping bringing folks into office. What has been the most important, maybe lesson that you have learned thus far? I've been really lucky to do this. A lot of folks try to do this as an industry and, you know, for a variety of reasons, from the barriers of entry due to the bouts of unemployment from campaign to campaign, to not being able to afford to do this, to not meeting the right people in the right circumstance or learning the right lessons in the space. All of these things make a lot of this lucky. I, I, you know, I will say that one of the things I've been blessed by is, um, and I feel it's been rewarded to me is, is having the ability to work in an environment with a lot of people and do it constructively. Um, I think is really important. And I think that that's the thing that I've taken from this. The biggest lesson is, is effectively being able to work with lots of people can take you really far. And for me, that's just started on doing the best I can to try to do it with integrity and, 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 and try to lead and try to work by being a good person <laughs> and, you know, putting your best foot forward and recognizing that every interaction with somebody, either whether it's somebody you're working for or they work for you or it's somebody in the same space, like a colleague from, a, you know, a different field and on a campaign. But what's that user interaction? Like, What's their takeaway of the experience with you? And is that a positive one or not? And even if you disagree, if that interaction and that experience is positive, that can just go a really long way. Um, and so uh, I'd like to think that part of the reason why, you know, we've been successful is in part because we're easy to work with because people like working with us because we're collaborative and we're communicative. Um, and we try to lead, lead by example in terms of the ethic that we put in the space. Uh, and I, that's my biggest takeaway is, is that if you try to do the right thing, actually in the long run that's gonna that 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 will be rewarded. pay off yeah definitely yeah. so how do you take care of your interior world as we come to a close to our wonderful time together what do you practice for your self-care and balance in your professional and personal life I, I you know it's really interesting that you asked this question because it is probably the thing that i have and i think most recently started to spend time recognizing that i need to do which I hadn't before, um, uh, uh, you know, but increasingly like I'm, I'm lucky to be married. I've been married for 15 years. I have two wonderful daughters. Uh, uh, I have found some things that I can be passionate about outside of work, uh, that help me, you know, go along um, the easiest one of those is my wife and my kids. Um, 
But, you know, self-care for me tends to be around health because I work really long hours. Um, and so I'm pretty committed to my personal health. I work out. I make the time to work out six days a week. Um, I, I pay attention to it. It's like my time. Um, uh, I think that that's helpful. And not just for me physically. It's really helpful for my own mental clarity. Um, I, I find that to be helpful. And I found hobbies uh, that provide me an outlet. Um, I love sports. I love music. Those things really, uh, help me find time. Um, if I were to add a piece to that, uh, it would be, you know, um, we used to be better at this and we're trying to be again, is is trying to add to teaching my kids more about their culture and helping them find spirituality in the same way my parents did for me would be, I think the additional piece to that. But those are the pieces overall that, that I think, I think work. And, and another most recent lesson is I think it's really important to talk about this stuff um, and to find outlets to like, if you are frustrated to be able to have a safe space to voice it. And, you know, and, and even in our own company, I think we're starting to like go down this lane of recognizing that and speaking back to cultural pluralism, that doesn't work if you don't create safe spaces for people who don't look like you and who are different from you to be able to comfortably voice their opinion. And to be able to do it in a place where they feel like they won't be castigated for it um, is really, really important. And in this new global work environment that we're getting to, I think that is going to be increasingly an important piece to, to our broader success as a, not just any business, but as a community, um, is to be able to find spaces for people to feel safe, to be able to be who they are. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. What's the best website that individuals can get in touch with you if they want to run for office? <laughs> Go to lefthookstrategy.com. Um, you'll see some of our work. You will see me and my and the great team that I get to work with every day. I bet you do. Raghudeva Guptalu, it's been wonderful to have you. And you're just such an inspiration. And wish you and your family and your dreams and your goals and your ability to take good care of yourself the best the best May 2022 and beyond be your absolute best as well. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for doing this series. It's an honor to be on. Um, and I'm glad you're doing this. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Don't, don't go away. So everybody, I'm sure you've gotten a lot of information from Raghu and definitely contact him if you'd like some more information or just some insights about stuff. If you happen to be thinking of getting into office, he might be a good call to make. He's done a lot of work so far. But just, you know, think about the complexities of everything. And I wonder, okay, if we all just come from that headspace, it's going to be, isn't it harder? But is there a way that we can balance head and heart and find the union there? I wonder. A lot of times I intellectually have the right answer, but my heart is saying no. That gut feeling in me goes no, no. But intellectually it makes sense. But why is it that something else inside of the soul, my gut says, don't do it. And every time I go against my gut or my heart, there's something. So my question to you is as we part, is there a way that you can find the balance between head and heart? Is there a way that we can come together and work for the common good? It's okay to be different. I want to be different. I don't want you to be just like me. How boring would that be anyway? But what is the missing piece required to help us to get along and to move forward? I leave that for you to ponder on. Thank you so much for joining us on Where East Meets West. And remember, nobody, absolutely no one, can take away your happiness unless you give them permission. 
And I suspect if you put some insights into it, we might be here to practice learning to love each other the same. Let's do it. Take good care and thanks again for joining us.